one thing people don't realize is food. We don't have a food system yet. We don't have a solution. Everyone's focusing on radiation and on the rocket launches and getting the right, you know, um, orbit and the right fuels. But we, if we don't have food, we can't survive. And again, it brings back to the history of vitamin discovery. All the human explorations we've had on this planet have failed predominantly due to nutrition. So I get so important and, I, and, and my love for it, it's the opportunity that if you can create a food system on, on a spacecraft that you know will go to Mars and back in three years, five years, or a settlement that's on the moon, not, not as close to Earth that you can't you know, resupply every fortnight, then whatever technology that is, we can apply the technology back on Earth and feed the 10 billion people that will live on Earth by 2050. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are the sum of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and world sport coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Our guest today is a true global force in human health and well-being, weaving her magic across continents. She is a Brazilian-born, Canadian-raised, and Australian-made scientist, dietitian, space nutritionist and entrepreneur who's changing the game. She graduated from the University of Toronto with an honors in Bachelor of Science in Nutritional Sciences and attained both her Masters of Nutrition and Dietetics and PhD in Nutrition from the University of Sydney. Our guest holds the title of the first internationally board certified dietitian in lifestyle medicine in Australia and attended the International Space University's Space Studies program. She's a space cadet, by the way. Uh, <laughs> a dynamic speaker, she effortlessly uses space analogies to make science accessible and enjoyable. She's the brains behind Food IQ Global and the co-founder of Food is Cool. As the fellow of the Australian Society of Lifestyle Medicine and an adjunct lecturer at Newcastle University, she is a true powerhouse. And today she joins us to share her insights and wisdom and take us on a journey where science meets fun and well-being takes center stage. Dr. Flavia Fayette-Moore. Flavia, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg, for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Beautiful. Well, you're currently on the other side of the world to me in Toronto, um, but I'm curious. You know, you grew up in Brazil. Tell us a little bit about what life was like for you as a little kid and was flying to the moon one of your big dreams when you were a kid? Oh, being a little kid, um, I used to, I've always loved art and performance and creativity. So it was um, writing songs, dancing. 
I remember even a story that my mom tells me all the time about how crazy I can be sometimes, that um, in my great-grandmother's funeral, um, my aunt had me, and I was dancing on top of tables, <laughs> just entertaining the crowd. So I've always loved um, being on stage and, and entertaining people and being creative and writing songs and music. And um, so my childhood was very happy, very free. I loved the weather in Brazil. I didn't know how much I loved the weather until I went to Toronto, Canada. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was just great. You know, it was a really nice um, upbringing, upbringing with my family. Um, in Sao Paulo, it's a massive city. Mm. So at the time, it probably had maybe like 15 million people or something around that. Now it's almost at 30 million, Sao Paulo. So quite big numbers when you think of the population of Australia in you know, one tiny little state. And um, and that was really, I was very academic, you know, as a child. My mom was very, very prioritized studying and making time for studying, but also playing when we got home from school. And I also used to love watching um, She-Ra and He-Man <laughs> and the three channels we had, and it was set times, and you can record it <laughs> back in those days. So. Yes, in those days. Now, Talk about writing songs there. You know, what type of music, um, what type of lyrics? Curious. Oh, I, I, I mean, that's when I was like six, seven. I don't even remember. <laughs> but I remember I used to love singing and love writing my songs. But then we moved to Canada and I didn't speak the language. <laughs> so I remember that was like a, a line in the sand of my creativity just gone, uh, like I can't communicate. I can't do what I used to. It really, I remember that was a defining moment of, I can't sing in this language or I can't communicate in this language because I didn't know any English. So it was very, a memory that I remember that kind of stopped me from being so extroverted and made me really introverted at the time. Wow, what a defining moment. So, so were you, were there ways that you would express yourself? Did you continue to dance on those tabletops? Um, were there other ways you expressed yourself? I think I've always been very happy, like very positive in, in my life as a child and growing up and even now. I, I'm very optimistic in my outlook on, on life. But I don't recall, like I recall it was a difficult time because A, being like a really, you know, straight-A student coming from Brazil to learning a new language and kind of being in the special English as a second language class and taking time to learn the language and do well. It didn't take long um, because math is universal, for example, right? So there's certain things that... But the, the ability, the social connections and, you know, playing with the other children and that that took a while and it took a while to kind of fit in again. So I remember that feeling that... It just, it's effort. And I remember learning English watching The Simpsons. <laughs> I didn't know that it wasn't a cartoon for kids. <laughs> but I remember watching a lot of Simpsons um, when I was learning English. I can see Homer being a great role model for you. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Maybe it was good, maybe it was bad. It's um, a vivid memory of The Simpsons. I used to love it. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. Now, you obviously Sao Paulo and Toronto, completely different cultures, completely oh, yeah. different climates, uh, different languages. That 
you know, shifting. At what age did you move from Brazil to Toronto? When I was 10 or 9 turning 10. Yeah. So so learning those resilience. In the middle of winter. In the middle of winter. <laughs> February. February. So like Canada, an 80 degree which swing. Like, <laughs> yeah. It was like more like a 50 degree difference. Yeah. <laughs> it was, um, you know, you're going from, you know, beautiful weather to minus 20 degrees freezing um, where you can't really walk. On ground, you've got to go underground in Toronto, and every, there's you know a subterranean city. Mm. So, so the resilience you develop at that young age, um, do you feel that's really helped you a lot as you navigate in kind of the world um, as an adult? I think so because there's I think it's ability to adapt um, to environments. Um, and to be able to keep plowing and trying to do what you you love doing and not thinking about the the negative outcomes that could happen like really focusing on when you really want something and you believe in it you can make it happen and i remember there and i've always been very much like if i believe in something like i want to work with nasa four years ago i said and now i am like it's when you really believe and i think it's when you believe like a child and you have that feeling like a child does when they really believe in Santa or when they really believe in something and it comes from the heart, then you're really limitless in, in what you can achieve. And I remember a very vivid moment in my life with my, my mom and my sister. She used to take us to the theater every Sunday and there was a draw for a raffle or something that happened at the very start, you know, every, based on the tickets we had. And... Um, and my mom said something to my sister, and she was sitting in the middle of us. And then next minute, my sister's name gets called out, and she wins the prize. And I was like, what did you tell her? And she said, oh, I just told her to believe that her name was going to be called, and her name was called. And then I said, okay, I'm going to believe, 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 believe. Then my name was called next, and everyone thought it was rigged. But that moment taught me that when you really, really, truly believe in something, that it can happen. And I, I've kind of applied that throughout, you know, my life from that was in Brazil as I was growing up to really not be limited by self-limiting beliefs, really. I don't know what my mom did with me, but I tell everyone that I, I this confidence and belief that I can achieve anything is incredible. And it's nice to, to be raised with that. The belief and confidence of a child. I, I think there's something yes. everyone can focus on for 2024 and, and beyond. I really like that. The, did you have any, actually, one of the things I learned, you're moving between countries and different languages is to really shift from the, to the power of observation. You know, you've gone so much, you're relying on things that you hear, but when you actually sit down and you're in places where language, you may not connect at the beginning, you tend to observe a lot and you start to communicate, the ability to communicate, I feel goes to another level. Did you find that as well that you started to observe things a lot closer and uh, use the power of the eyes a lot more than just the ears? I think so, yes, as well. Um, personally, I've never really been that good of a listener. <laughs> I'm consciously working on it. Um, but it's a really good point that I've never thought about, um, being able to observe because what I wanted the most every time is to be able to fit in, mm. right? To just be normal, um, kind of... Because in Brazil, like we wear short shorts and bright colors and people are more, you know, 
vibrant in the way they communicate and dance and talk and even with hand motions. So I kind of like observed how everyone is and 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 adapted to what was normal within society to be able to um, feel like I belong, mm-hmm. right? To that new society, to that new group, to the new school, to the group of friends. So I, I do think I did a lot of observing. Um, and then when I finally fit in, I moved countries again. <laughs> so, um, but then there's a the realization that you don't have to fit in. Right. Like you can be true to who you are. And and that's your unique selling point or that's your unique value that you give to society or you give to your relationships is actually being true to who you are. And so over the years, I've learned to embrace that um, more and more. I give it to my background and the color that I have on right now, it's bright. <laughs> and I wear my bright earrings. Today I'm wearing black, but usually I love to wear color. Just embracing that culture that I you know grew up with. Yeah, but it's it's really interesting point you make. Yeah, please don't try to fit in because I, <laughs> I, I love the uniqueness of you, and I, and I think it's so important to lean into that. Yeah. Your did your love of food? You know, obviously now you work in the food space. Was it something you were passionate as a as a child, or um, you know, where did it where did kind of the nutrition and dietitian uh, dietetics come into play yeah. for you? I've, I, I asked my mom that recently to try to pinpoint, like, where did that love come from? And there's a couple things. So first, I've always experimented with food. I remember my mom gave us free reigns. Do you remember those little, I don't know if they even exist anymore, but the little, you know, bacon muffin toy or pancake or they used to be really popular. And it's just a plastic, like, fake oven that you buy some pre-mix mixture you put it in it heats up and then make bake some off and my mom was always like no Flavia I'll just get you all the ingredients and you can use the real oven so she always encouraged me to experiment and cook I, I really feel like my kitchen was my first laboratory you know as a, as a scientist it's where I started experimenting and loving to to see when you make things like I used to use the freezer it was like a no-bake bar chocolate bar I used to make and then you change the ingredients and it changed the consistency or make it crunchier or it wouldn't freeze. Mm. Like how many times I failed, <laughs> it didn't work. Um, and then whenever I wanted to use the oven or microwave or something, my mom would um, help me, right? So I've always had that free reign to experiment with food, which I always loved. But when I reflected on why I like, why am I so passionate? I'm always trying to give advice to friends and family and try to inspire them to love food again. And I think it's because when, you know, when I was young, when we moved to Canada, I saw my mom go on a lot of diets. You know, it was from one diet to another to another. And in Brazil, like food is life. Mm-hmm. Food is family. It's culture. It's like it's everything surrounds food, not only in Brazil, you know, most cultures around the world, but it's very strong in that Latin South American culture. So I just saw that like love that she had and joy that food brought her just completely being ripped from her and I then I wanted to like research what's going on like how can I like should you really mom like not have butter in your cookie <laughs> or you know your toast is like is egg really that evil and I wanted to research so much I used to read lots of magazines uh, at the time this is pre-social media times right and just do a lot of research and try to find answers and I think what was driving me is to be able to bring that joy back to my mom around foods that as a child when I saw it happening it was just 
there was no joy on eating. It was like restriction. Mm-hmm. It was like, don't have this, too much sugar, too much fat. And I'm like, is it worth it? Like, I want to know more. <laughs> How can she still enjoy food and, you know, lose weight or be healthy or whatever the question was? But definitely it was like that weight stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom wasn't even overweight, you know, it was yeah. just that diet culture that still exists and that's still very predominant in society, which is really, really heartbreaking. You know, you were talking about trying to fit in earlier. Was that maybe your mum's way of trying to fit into uh, into life in Canada? A hundred percent. You know, she, my dad was a pilot, so he was away a lot. So she's basically a single parent in a new country that's freezing and that she doesn't speak the language. I mean, it. There's a lot of things happening there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, th- there's so many amazing components to moving to new locations, but it's also it's not that easy to build a network of friends and things like that fast. You know, it depends where you yeah. are, and um, so you, you need that resilience. And sometimes we need coping mechanisms as well to try and deal with the the stresses maybe that come along with it, the, you know, uh-huh. the, the lash, lack of social connection that we may face in some ways. Yeah. And so, yeah, we've got to be mindful of what that leads to. And so I'm glad that she had you yeah. around to kind of go, hey, mama, let, let, let's let's try and protect you here a little bit. Let's see how we can make this a little bit better. It's well done. I yeah. Like that. I now, also noticed like with moving a lot, right, there's like phases that you go through. Um, which now I know the phases and I kind of expect it and I know what I'm feeling is normal. So at first it's really exciting. There's a little bit of excitement mm. that happens and then you, it's really low. You know, you go to a time, go like, what am I doing here? And if it was a decision that I made, it's a bit like, why did I make that decision? Mm. And then as soon as you start finding like your coffee shop and your hairdresser, you make a few friends you have the routine, the brain starts becoming familiar with the surroundings, right? You'd have yep. the familiarity. Because whenever you're in a new environment, there's so much stimuli that the brain takes in. Mm. And it has to actually learn what's useful and what's not. So it can stop, you know, it basically you don't see things that the brain doesn't want to see because it's just, it needs to, you know, block it. Otherwise, it's too much stimulation. Yeah. So I find that like you're going through that phase and then you can you come back up again. So it's a real like up, down, up. And knowing that that's going to happen, then I, I, I kind of feel comfortable going on the ride. It's like a roller coaster. Mm. You know what to expect. So then you know that it's not going to last forever and you can just ride it. <laughs> <Yeah. That's good. laughs> We've seen a lot of shifts in food in the last, you know, probably in our lifetime. You know, we've gone from what I feel was relatively basic foods. Um, yes, we had some. Uh, foods that were produced and things like that versus the natural foods. Uh, but it was relatively, you know, the, the the options were relatively basic. Now we have so many different types of food options. We have so much processed foods out there. We've seen a big shift. For you, what is, what has been probably the, the biggest um, growth in what we've understood in nutrition in our lifetime, but also what's probably one of the things that is causing greatest concern for you? It's a good question. Um, I have a couple of angles on, on my answer to that. I think the biggest shift that I've seen is that we're not learning from our past. 
which was very frustrating to watch. So, for example, what I mean by that is in the 80s, you know, and 90s, when it all became about low fat or fat free, and um, foods started then becoming, you remove the fat, but then you add loads of starch or you add thickeners or you add other things to it. And you're making this food that doesn't really resemble the original. And also it doesn't give you the same pleasure as the original. Mm. So it becomes nearly like, are we really meeting people's needs when it comes to that food? And then you fast forward to today and we're seeing again, all like huge investment in, in, in plant-based protein alternatives or cell-grown meats or... And it's just going back to that, you know, we're creating this super ultra processed foods or foods that we don't know yet. And we actually don't know the health effect mm. and not learning from the past of like, can we not tunnel vision into one thing and one way without looking at the big picture? Like if we're not making food that's nutritious, then why are we, why are we even investing in that if it's not sustainable and nutritious now? There's also the angle of sustainability, right? So yeah. I would love to see, you know, food as an industry and researchers and society as a whole, um, not getting tunneled vision into one thing, thinking that's going to solve all our problems because f food is so complex and there's so many factors that influence um, the effect of it on health and on the planet. What I think um, we've learned over the years is not to have a reductionist approach to food. So remember, it was all about fat or all about protein or all about sugar. It's like, you don't eat pure sugar or pure fat. It's like, there's only a few foods that you can actually have that is pure, a single nutrient, right? Or macronutrient, like carbohydrate, fat, or protein. So, and it's not just about nutrients either, like the micronutrients, like the vitamins and minerals. We're now learning that even, for example, oils, right? So extra virgin olive oil Everyone thinks of it as a fat, but it actually has loads of bioactives that influence your health. And you can argue sometimes more than the effect of that healthy fat does. So we, we've learned is that there's the food matrix and that matrix and the bioactives that are in it and the way the nutrients and bioactives interact have a significant effect on the, the effect of that food on our health. So we can be looking from a reductionist approach. We really need to be looking holistically and we need to be taking the effect on the planet as part of that equation. And my hope one day is to be able to see more research being connected from agriculture to human health. So there's a lot of, you know, paddock to play, but I want to see paddock to health outcome. Like how can we grow this food so that we don't have to fortify our food supply with iodine? for example, right? So it's really connect agriculture to human health so we can have a holistic approach. Mm, beautiful, I like that. There's so many challenges at play too because then you've got pest control and herbicides and things like that that start to affect soils and um, or even what's going in our waterways. So it's, it's, a, it's a much bigger picture when it comes to actually the food that we may receive on our plates or that we can get from the vegetable stores and, and different shops. Um, is there much, com like, is there conversations? Do they have places where they meet around this and think about this bigger holistic picture? Or is it still only small pockets of it? There there are small pockets of it. Um, uh, it's it's so complex, right? There are opportunities and there are organizations that, that leverage that and help connect people to think that way. But again, another thing that I see a lot of, there's a lot of like collaborations, but 
massive number of organizations, but like nothing actually happens, <laughs> right? You see a lot of that. There's, there's a purpose, there's a mission, there's collaboration. And then when you look at the outcomes, the tangible outcomes of that collaboration, it takes time. Things don't move very quickly. So uh, the opportunities are there. I think the more people realize that we need to connect, you know, soil all the way to human health um, and in the creation of products, because, you know, you mentioned not more processing. Yes, but like processing is what has allowed us, our brains to grow as well. There is, there's processing that is beneficial to human health. And then there's processing that perhaps is not. So um, I don't like to have like a blanket, you know, processing is bad. Um, but it's really around how, how much of a whole food is it? But not everyone can access a whole food. Like some people, you know, there's huge micronutrient deficiencies where they need the fortification in order to even just survive. Um, so it's, it's so, food is so complex and sometimes people do ha come from a lens of privilege and forget that the whole world is not the same in terms of access and equity around food and nutrition. Yeah. It, we, we've seen in, I don't know, maybe it's just a little bit more prominent in our minds or it's in the media, but we seem to have a lot more people with allergies. Are we, are we starting to get our finger on the pulse as to why there seems to be a lot more food allergies now than, than uh, what I can recall as a young child? Uh, again, you know, so many factors, like there's awareness as well. So you might perceive that it's more, but perhaps there's just better diagnosis and better awareness. And people cater to allergies, food allergies now, where, you know, even 20 years ago, gluten-free, like people have celiac disease, had very little choice in what foods they could purchase. It was just a whole foods, yeah, like yeah. if they had to follow a gluten-free diet, for example. The other is, it's also our, you know, the connection between our gut and inflammation and immune system. If we're not um, creating the, the healthiest microbiota, you know, from birth on onwards, when it's colonizing, then it can influence the way you respond to the environment and also the way you introduce foods. So if there's still not a lot of knowledge around the introduction of foods when it comes to minimizing allergies, um, and the way to do it is to introduce the top allergenic foods, but not just once. You introduce, then you repeatedly introduce. And if you have family history, you introduce earlier, and then that minimizes the, the risk as well. So we have more knowledge. We have more awareness around it. In terms of absolute increase, I'm not sure if it really has, um, but there's lots of factors like the, the microbiome, the environment, how you introduce foods. They can all contribute to the prevalence of allergies in a population. Yeah, I know. Talking to my wife um, when our baby was first born and we're you know, looking at, you know, listening to some people and they're going, oh, avoid this and avoid that and avoid that because of allergies. And I'm like, if they don't get any exposure to anything, how are they supposed to build either an immunity or a... Um, a connection to that food type or whatever it may be is is that the way to approach it? Like I think you mentioned there, just a little bit around just that giving small yes. access, you know, access to in small doses so, to begin with, etc. If you have family history, then you want to introduce it. So the recommended introduction of solids is six months. Now, if you do have some family history of allergies, you can introduce a bit earlier because there's some evidence that a bit earlier is better for allergy prevention. And when you do introduce, like, let's say you're giving a bit of peanut butter, right, for peanut allergy, let's say, you you introduce the food and then a couple of days later you do it again and then again and then again. 
Because what happens is if you just give it once, then they can actually sensitize to the protein in the in the peanut that can be allergenic. Uh. So the next time they have it, if it's been a long time, they react. They have an allergic reaction, right? So it's around that repeated introduction and going through all the top allergens as soon as you can, as soon as it's feasible. Um, and of course, monitoring and seeing if there's an allergic reaction. But that's the the evidence-based way of approaching it. Yeah, it's cool. Can I create an allergy to boys for my little daughter? <laughs> <laughs> Repeated exposure while young. <laughs> no, no, you can just never introduce once and then never again. <laughs> okay, we'll try that the one. Total opposite. <laughs> you're someone who's set your minds to things. And I, and I love talk, earlier on, you were talking about the belief and, and the confidence in things. And you made that choice four years ago to to want to work with NASA. And you've made that a reality, yeah. which is extraordinary. And I, I know we've had a conversation around this before. But where did that, you know, that idea around NASA, where did that come from from you? What was the reasoning behind why you really were passionate about figuring out food and space maybe? Yeah. Um, so remember when I said I got really introverted and um, – kind of lost that passion for like the art and creativity um, and performance. So because my dad was a pilot, I kind of grew up in airplanes and always loved flying, loved. Um, my sister was also into astronomy, so we did lots of stargazing. And it was just, I was always intrigued by the ability of a human to go into a spacecraft that you've designed and go up into space, go up into the atmosphere, right? Um, just amazing, the physics of it. And then with the physics, are so simple <laughs> when you learn the physics. So I decided I went, like, I just love Top Gun as well. I watched Top Gun and fell in love. Like I was like, I love fighter jets. They are just the coolest thing in the world. Dad, I'm going to be a pilot, but I want to be a fighter pilot. And um, I basically looked up in the yellow pages how I could and found out, I can't remember exactly who gave me the hint to look up, look up the Royal Canadian Air Cadets. And I looked up the Royal Canadian Air Cadets, the closest one to where I lived in the Yellow Pages. So I was 13 at the time and joined. And again, I think that's that bravery of like, that was the worst thing that can happen. I'll just join. And then I loved it because it's basically the military for young people. So you're learning leadership. And I... I credit my leadership and the natural ability to to lead teams that I've learned because I learned it so young. One of my commanders gave me um, how to win friends and influence people to read when I was 16. You know, I was like, you just have so much exposure to leadership, to dress, deportment, chain of command, the politics of the workplace. You know, someone gets promoted, you don't, and you don't feel so great. And you're like, why? And it's because they're friends with the friends. And, you know, you just, it's life. It's a really nice lesson on life. But long story short, then I joined and I did everything I could as part of it. And what you get is the opportunity to get a scholarship to become a pilot. And I studied hard and I, you know, passed the exam and won a scholarship and went to flight training um, at a base and spent six weeks becoming a pilot. So absolutely loved it. And then I had the realization after. So that was when I was 18 and I was about to start university. I was about to turn 19 that year. And I realized, oh, what do fighter pilots do? Uh, 
I really love health and nutrition and <laughs> science. <laughs> and I was like, oh, maybe I should go more towards science because I love experimenting. I love science and biology. And I did first year um, biology at the university and then realized that you can actually study nutrition on my second year. And then that was the last decision I ever made in terms of career. It was nutrition. So over time, um, you know, love, my love for flight, I continued uh, being a pilot as a hobby, but I also love adventure. Um, I love the exploration concept. Um, I, you know, part of my master's thesis in nutrition, I looked at, looked at the history of, of vitamin discovery. I loved reading all the books and putting white gloves on, could order at the time from universities in Germany and in Europe and read, you know, the original books of how the vitamins were discovered. And I love that there was that theme on exploration, you know, in my life of going to different countries, becoming a scuba diver, a pilot, and and over time being becoming an expert in nutrition, I saw a real opportunity for space. I said, you know, it's where we are going next. It's um, if if we don't work in the in the space sector, we're going to miss out because it's already happening. Even four years ago, it wasn't as popular as it is now. Right now, you can watch on YouTube, you know, rocket launches. Blue Origin just had another one this morning, and um, so you get to really just watch what's happening. It's all it's happening now. But four years ago, I really saw that it's kind of it's the future. There's a clear opportunity in nutrition because people eat. And people love to eat, and we cannot have space tourism or a colonization in Mars or a settlement on the moon without food systems. So many people don't realize. Um, I was actually um, talking to a couple of people, like on part of a, a webinar last week, where we had a couple of people um, working in space medicine, talking about you know um, deep space explorations or even moon settlement, and they're like, one thing people don't realize is food. We don't have a food system yet. We don't have a solution. Everyone's focusing on radiation and on the rocket launches and getting the right, you know, um, orbit and the right fuels. But we, if we don't have food, we can't survive. And again, it brings back to the history of vitamin discovery. All the human explorations we've had on this planet have failed predominantly due to nutrition. So I get so important and, I, and, and my love for it, it's the opportunity that if you can create a food system on, on a spacecraft that, you know, will go to Mars and back in three years, five years, or a settlement that's on the moon, not, not as close to Earth that you can't, you know, resupply every fortnight, then whatever technology that is, we can apply the technology back on Earth and feed the 10 billion people that will live on Earth by 2050. So not only is it my love for adventure and my love for exploration, but I see a real opportunity that if you can create food that's nutritious and sustainable in a system that's closed, so everything that goes in stays in, then whatever technology that is, whatever crop systems that we create, you can just create you know, in a warehouse in the middle of the desert or you can create underground, or you can have it in, in places where people don't have access to fresh food. And, and also the, the um, preservation of food. If we can figure out a way to preserve food so it doesn't need refrigeration, that it's you know preserved for long periods of time, we can send those foods to those remote places on Earth and people can have access to 
nutritious foods. Space has a, a wonderful well, way of accelerating technology and, and change. And I love how you're approaching this. And you know, for most people, you know, they sit there and go, okay, I get, I've got food on the plate, there's plenty of food to get here on the planet. But you think about adding another 20% or 25% to the population of the world in you know, yeah. sort of the next 25 years, there's a lot of extra food that's required. And, you know, but we've also got to create more space for people to live. So you kind of lose that opportunity to grow food and produce food and things like that along the way. So we do need, yeah. so what you're doing is really, really important to not only putting people in space, which is kind of fun and exciting, but it's probably more important here on planet earth where we've got to figure out what is the sustainable long-term future of ensuring people have a nutritious, effective diet uh, in the future. And, and space also offers the opportunity to do accelerated research. So for what I mean by that is that in space, it's a hazardous environment. It's like every minute it's trying to kill you. So the lack of gravity or the radiation. So it's accelerated aging, right? So we, you can have experiments, you can test a different food and the effect that food has on someone's health in space. And you basically, in one month, you get data that's equivalent to a year on Earth. Right, so you get to analyze things a lot quicker, um, and experiment in space, and bring the, those discoveries back on Earth. Some of the drugs that are, are used nowadays on for osteoporosis um, were developed because of space. So there's a lot of um, applications on Earth. Yeah, I needed that when I was about ten years old before my bones yeah. started breaking down. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Um, yeah, and also in terms of waste. So, you know, 98% of the water on the International Space Station is recycled. So why isn't 98% of our water on Earth recycled that we use? So it's really leveraging that technology and applying it to Earth um, and having the investment that's there for whatever reason that people are investing to go to space and explore. Let's leverage that R&D so that we can solve some of the biggest problems that we're facing on Earth. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, I, solar um, solar panels are kind of the big the big thing at the moment for houses, but you know in the future it is it is probably that recycling of water. It is how yes. do we how do we even utilize food scraps or, or wastage in that yeah, to are. then help produce more food? And I I think that's really exciting. Now, when we're talking about space, what can we grow? What what can we grow at the moment? Um, up there in space that's sustainable that we've been able to figure out so far? So there, we can grow some crops like lettuce and tomatoes. So they're very, they're just small pick and eat crops at the moment. So you, we can't grow anything that um, like animals because they're too intense in, in resources. Can you, can you hear barking in the background? Yeah. That's okay. It's all good. Can we to just stop and keep no, going now? No, okay. animals are good. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so right now it's just pick and eat crops. It's nothing that meets their nutritional needs. So even on the International Space Station, um, it's great that the astronauts have it because food brings so much more than nutrition, right? It's joy. Their yeah. two favorite places as well on the International Space Station is the cupola, which is the big round dome where you look at Earth. And the other favorite place is where they grow plants. Oh, nice. The greenery. So it just shows that human connection to Earth right? And to food. And, uh, you know, the favorite time of day for them is when, when they sit down and have a meal. 
So it just shows that not only do we need to meet nutritional needs, but astronauts are high performing. They usually do what they're told, but if they've got to eat a certain thing over and over and they don't like it, they won't. Yeah. <laughs> That's one thing that I've learned that, you know, through the course of late work is that you can't expect them to eat if they are not going to enjoy it. So that applies to everyone. Yeah, I mean, if if you're someone that likes meat, um, you know, there's only so much beef jerky you can you can take, or I would imagine. <laughs> exactly, and because we do get bored, we need variety. Yeah. Variety is so important in our food system, um, and diversity. So, so in order to get all the different nutrients, but also to keep our taste buds happy and our soul happy. <laughs> yeah. So when we're looking at food on an international space station and things like that, obviously, we, you know. If we're thinking about, uh, let's just look at vegetables to begin with. I'll keep it simple. Let's, if we're talking about vegetables, you know, if we think about it down here on the ground, we're looking at soils and rain and sunlight and uh, nutrients. And, um, you know, we've also got the likes of bees that may pollinate certain things or other animals that play in the ecosystem. So how do we navigate being able to grow things in such a small space without kind of the normal conditions that we would have down here on ground level. Yeah, so that's where I, I think in terms of the true value that food provides from a nutritional standpoint, even space is going through that, you know, single-minded outlook because I really believe it's the whole ecosystem. Yeah. It's the microbes in the soil, it's the microbes in the air that are beneficial to health as well, not just in the soil. Yeah. And we're probably not going to be able to create from the technology that we have now, who knows in the future as technology advances, this the equivalent. You know, it might be equivalent in nutritional um, content. Yep. But right now the the way that it's done is through hydroponics predominantly. There's a lot of research. So you're basically adding the nutrients either with spraying um, aerated or liquid and then there's the the different uv lights and the different color lights that um the bulbs that shine on the plant for it to grow so um it's not equivalent right because I, I that's one of the things that i always talk about it's like but what is the effect of the, the environments that we can't measure that we don't yet know of yeah. the air composition of the soil composition or even if it's all robotics the, the value of just picking the crop and eating it, uh, right? So that brings joy. So it's finding a fine balance between growing it for nutrition, but also what that grow, the agriculture, the value of the agriculture has on society and on the, in space, in the spacecraft or in the colony or whatever it ends up being called. I think that's important. You know, you, you go back to, you talk about Brazil and a lot of Latin countries where food is kind of the centerpiece of everything. Uh, happens a lot mm -hmm. in Asia and in the Middle East as well. Uh, it's very, very common where where food is the, the con or not the conduit, but kind of the, the gravity towards bringing people together and those social connections and the and bringing out the right the the happy hormones in a way and things like that just because of that pure love and joy of being around it so I, I even love hearing the way that you're talking about that you know just being able to pick the food versus a robot picking it and things like yeah. that which is kind of fascinating now obviously in space the ear composition is quite different to what we have um down on 
and down on oh. planet Earth. <laughs> and so, how how easy is it to to be able to create water? How easy is it to um, be able to use other like are there other sort of minerals or vitamins and or microbes in in the atmosphere up there yeah, that's different so to here? It's a closed loop system, right? So everything that's in there stays in there. We don't know the answer to a lot of those questions. I'm personally, I'm actually almost done writing a paper about air and the the effect of air in terms of nutrition mm-hmm. on health. And I really believe that we need to start looking more at that. So right now we, we look at the composition of air from a negative perspective, ensuring that there's nothing toxic, no um, germs or you know bacteria or viruses that can hurt us. But I think we are missing part of the point by not looking at what's beneficial in air. No. We we always look at air in terms of what's detrimental through history. Um, but there's even there's a paper that recently got published arguing that perhaps oxygen is a nutrient. No. And just because the mode of ingestion is different, it doesn't mean it's not actually a nutrient in terms of how we classify it. So um, it's all monitored, right? It's highly monitored because if someone gets a virus uh, in a closed loop system, the virus stays there and you got to get rid of it as quickly as possible. So with filters, um, it's basically filtration systems for water and air. But I think there's a lot of, of research that we need to do on what's also beneficial that we're missing. Uh. You know, there's, for example, nature. In nature therapy, why do people go to nature? And they get better from their anxiety, from their depression. And it's just called like forest bathing or nature therapy. You're basically just told to prescribe, just sit in a forest, right? So what is it? Is it the lack of pollution or is it the presence of beneficial components in air as well? So watch this space because I'm very interested in it and I'm currently writing a paper about it. Um, But I think in space, it's the perfect application for it. Perhaps we do need to add things back that we've missed, that we have on earth, that we haven't um, taken into account that are important. Yeah, good. I like that. Uh, if we fast forward to 2050, we've got uh, 10 billion people on the planet, um, which is the way we're projecting it or trajectorying at the moment. What do you th- what do you kind of perceive are the are the biggest areas of opportunity that we need to tackle now to ensure that we can have better food uh, or or food. Um, opportunities for that or for all 10 billion people that um, if we don't look after it or we don't sort of think about it now, we could be in trouble. I think um, looking at our agricultural system and focusing on something that's very regenerative, I think is really important, as well as ensuring that whatever foods that we're creating, that if they're sustainable, that's great, but they've got to be nutritious. So an, an analogy that I use, because I see a lot of products, you know, coming in the market and people saying, oh, but it's so good for the environment, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, but it's not nutritious. So if it's not nutritious, would you recommend someone have Coca-Cola because it's better for the environment compared to milk, let's say? Right. So it's just having that mentality of it's got to be nutritious and sustainable. So I hope that there's a shift that we ensure that people are meeting their nutritional needs because then we're creating humans that are less healthy, even though we're saving the planet. So we're not saving a species. And third, I think the focus is on waste because um, all of the waste that we produce from the food uh, you know, supply 
but also the household. There is so much food waste and that we're producing enough food, we're just wasting it. So if we can find solutions to make things last longer on shelf, for fruits and vegetables to have a longer shelf life, there's a lot of technology in that space, um, then we can actually feed the 10 billion people. There's always a challenge around getting things to last longer because, I mean, a lot of the, I suppose, the go-tos at the moment, let's wrap it in plastic. Let's <laughs> stick in a can or whatever it may be, which yeah. we're trying to reduce the amount of plastic in the world and things like that. So I'm fascinated about where our shopping experience goes in the future. You know, right now we've gone back to the paper bag, which which was in our lives and when I was born and it's kind of done full circle. We're back to paper bags, but yeah, but we seem to have a lot more foods wrapped in something that is probably not yeah. so good for the planet. So it's a really, like, it's a tricky balance, isn't it? You're trying to keep that sustainability, but you're trying to be nutritious at the same time. Uh, you're trying to keep costs, you, you, cost effective as well. It's not just a yeah. simple answer to any of the challenges that we may face or the opportunities that we have. Yeah, I think it's it's important for people to remember that there's more to the story than just what you're seeing. You're seeing one perspective, one version. So maybe it might be the plastic, but the alternative might actually be worse for the environment, you know, challenging that. Like, let's say um, it's like, or even like washed potatoes, you know, are they're probably better for the environment than you washing it at home. So there's there's so many factors that come into play on sustainability. And I think it's important that we focus on sustainability as well, but also ensuring that it's sustainable and nutritious. So I, uh, that's probably my number one passion to ensure that people, we've got to get humans healthy as well. The yeah. planet is important, but just as important are the humans. Otherwise, we're literally going to get deficiencies that we were getting, you know, a hundred years ago before the vitamins were discovered. Okay. So with, yeah. I love this, I love this. <laughs> so we're sitting down in Tahiti. Um, we've got, we're having dinner with you and obviously there's going to be great food around because you love food. So there's going to be great food in front of us. We're in Tahiti, <laughs> so it's, it's going to be amazing anyway. Uh, but what outside of food and space is going to come up in conversation when we sit down with you? Um, oh, that's interesting. Outside of food, that's my life. What else do I talk about? <laughs> if we're in Tahiti, we're probably eating. We're probably on the beach. Just like we're probably having fun at water sports. I absolutely love water yep. and anything water related. Um, so from surfing to scuba diving to just snorkeling, I absolutely love doing water sports um, and, you know, probably would probably be trying to build like a tree house. <laughs> <laughs> doing something fun. Um, but in terms of the actual conversation, what are we talking about beyond food? I think it's, um, I, I really love talking about relationships, you know, and what drives people to be who they are and to say what they say. I think coming from so many different cultures and experiencing being able to relate to so many cultures and having three citizenships, right, where I kind of feel like I belong to all three. Uh, where parts of me belong. Um, I love just understanding how human beings are, what drives them to be successful, what drives them to follow their dreams, and what creates teams of people that work well together. I love that, talking about that. I love listening to podcasts about leaderships as well and, you know, um, people and dynamics yeah, of people. 
Yeah. For, for you, what is probably the biggest thing you've had to overcome uh, to get to where you are right now and for you to even continue to grow and make a bigger difference in this world? What would that be? Uh, I think it's just um, reminding myself of um, the power of believing in what you want to achieve. Sometimes I fall victim to the, oh, but what if? It's just recognizing those thoughts are where I don't trust that I can create and manifest. Um, so just being able to remind myself um, when things are tough, and COVID was a, a perfect example, you know, as a business, we had to condense what we were doing and regroup and shuffle and change. So um, in those moments when it's tough to be able to to have that belief and really believe, because I think it doesn't work unless you really believe. Mm. Okay. I like that. It's good. Uh, you know. I'm going to go I'm gonna one last food question here. Actually, I just thought <laughs> of a food question. Uh if you were in a kitchen, okay, okay, and you were bringing your Brazilian um, cuisine to the table, what cuisine, if someone was cooking that cuisine in the same kitchen, do you think there would be the most, uh, I'm thinking the, word, the challenge is not the white word, um, confrontation when it comes to cooking? Oh, if I, if I'm cooking something Brazilian, someone has something different. Yeah, what would that food be? That would oh, be that would that's cause an interesting confront question. And, and maybe the way they cook it, obviously the flair and everything that comes with it. What what potentially would be the biggest confrontation in the kitchen? Oh, I'm really easygoing in the kitchen. <laughs> I think maybe because I've experimented so much and failed and learned like how to do things well. My husband tells me that I'm a pretty good cook. <laughs> he loves when I cook. But, um, and my daughter too, actually, she's like, oh, mom, it is so good, especially after he's cooked and then I cook. <laughs> but I think I'm just easygoing. I think, um, I don't, I don't have that approach where I don't have that, like, this is the way this meal needs to be made. And I think because I don't have that, I, I kind of have the same approach to science. And I go like, that's how you challenge That's science at its best is where you actually don't have one belief. And if you have that belief, you're still open to to the other perspective, because you can learn that. That's how you learn, right? It's um, not only failing, but it's being open to doing things in a different way, trying it out, and seeing what happens. So, I would probably be more in the camp of, oh, that's interesting, how you're cooking that. I never thought of straining the pasta with the colander in it. I usually put the pasta in the colander, right? So that's how I've learned things um, in cooking and just being open. So I, I don't know. There's nothing really that would annoy me. Um, probably because I cook with extra virgin olive oil as my primary fat. Um, if someone's using like too much ghee or butter, I'd be like, oh, you're missing out on all those bioactives. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't want to miss out. Can you add just a little bit into your dish? <laughs> But that's coming from that, like, you know, nutrition mindset as well. But I think if someone else is cooking, it's a great thing and I will embrace it and enjoy it. Okay. Are, are you someone who likes to take up a lot of space when you cook or are you someone who's quite constrained? Oh, I'm not so organized in my cooking. I cannot stand making a mess while I'm cooking. I'm one of those that 
I love being like, so I don't follow recipes. I like reading it and then just kind of throwing my own flair and seasoning and order. Because um, often I don't like the order. I, I, first of all, I don't like the way recipes are written. I think we need to reinvent recipes. Good. And actually write it in the way you're doing it. Because mm. it's usually like ingredients and then method and you got to check back. And I'm like, someone needs to just do like a mind map recipe, right? Which is actually how, well, that's boiling. You do this. Anyway. Um, but I'm very organized with my cooking. I like to, you know, clean up as I go and have things measured as much as possible before I start. Because I really, for me, cooking is my meditation. It's mm. my downtime. When I'm cooking, I'm not thinking about anything else. It's the creativity. It's the art. It's the science. Um, so I really love that moment where I just get to create and then I get to eat the creation. <laughs> yeah. It, it Delicious. You remind yeah. me of me because I never cooked the same thing twice up until I moved to Thailand. And then when you move to Thailand, it's cheaper to eat out than it is to to buy your own food and, yeah. eat, and make it at home. So I think I cooked 10 times in two and a half years or whatever it was. Oh, wow. <laughs> and after that, for whatever reason, I lost that real love to be super creative in the kitchen. And even now, I still don't have it. I don't know what it is. Um is it kids, like having a baby? Well, that's only <laughs> recent. That kind of so kills there's, it. there's been a lot okay. of time before then. Jeez, <laughs> um, it's brought out my creativity in my wife, though. You should see the food that my daughter gets to eat. Cool. I'm like, I'm jealous. I'm like, how, how come I, I don't get these cool, uh, <laughs> cool meals? Um, which is all good. So I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure I'll find the love again. I do love food and I love cooking. But it, yeah, that whole creativity where every single dish was different. Maybe it'll come and back. And perhaps it's time. I find that. Um, I usually do a lot of cooking on the Sunday mm. because I have the time to to be in that space. Whereas during the week when you're busy, it's just there's not as much, you know, presence and meditative state in the cooking. It's more like let's do it because it's like six o'clock and then bath and bedtime, you know. It's a whole um, work, family, balance, commitment. Okay. Um, yeah. I said it was going to be a last nutrition question, but I got one more. <laughs> uh, if you were living, ask away, I love it. <laughs> if you were living, if you yourself were living on Mars, right? You got to live on Mars for a year. Uh, no. What What is one food that would that you would it would be an absolute necessity to have grow in there, like to be growing with you yeah, in there? You, you probably know the answer to that. So mushrooms, mushrooms. <laughs> Why mushrooms? So mushrooms. They're the perfect space food. And I'm actually working on a paper on that right now and trying to get mushrooms at least grown on the International Space Station and hopefully on a spacecraft to Mars. So mushrooms are actually fungi. So they sit in the in another biological kingdom. They're not a vegetable. Vegetables are plants. And then you've got animals, right? So animals include insects, but also all the animals that we eat. Um, so why... Are fungi so unique in terms of space food? Well, they grow well in microgravity, whereas plants don't, right? Plants need gravity to get to get the nutrients up, to to grow upright in gravity. They kind of like don't don't look so great. So you want to have big, beautiful palm trees um, in space. So they grow differently. Whereas fungi thrive. They they can grow well. They can also quite a, a lot of species grow well in the dark. So you don't need any light because they don't photosynthesize. They don't need the sunlight to make energy, whereas, um, you know, mushrooms are decomposers. They break things down to, to grow and to thrive. So the mushroom is really just the, the fruiting body 
of the organism, which is the mycelium. The mycelium is that network that's underground that connects trees and plants and communicates across the, the ecosystem. And mycelium can be used to create things. You can use it to create furniture. You can use it to create clothing. So not only is it going to help feed people, but also create other things. And then it helps close the system in the agriculture on, in space. So because they're decomposers, you can give all the, the mass that we can't eat from the growing the plants. So there's no waste in the growth of the what was grown because it's energy in, energy stays in. It's a lot of resources to grow a plant. So you don't want to waste anything that was grown that took energy. That gets fed into the, the mushroom substrate for the mycelium, for the mushrooms to pop out and grow. And then when we're done that, you can take that substrate that the mushroom has grown and use it as compost in the plant agriculture. But it doesn't stop there. It's, it's just literally amazing. I'm blown away at how it's the perfect space food. Then you can use human waste um, to, as input. So instead of using water, you can use urine and mushrooms can thrive. So the mycelium thrives, right, uh, with that. Um, so it's that recycling of everything in that closed loop system. But mushrooms are super nutritious. And I've been studying mushrooms for about six years now. So that's why I connected space and mushrooms together. And they, because they are neither plants nor animal, they have unique uh, nutritional properties, but also culinary. Okay, so there, there's more than 10%, some 20, 30% of loads of vitamins that we need, especially in space to protect the body, like the B vitamins. Right, that can help protect from radiation, help repair DNA damage. We have there's selenium that's not really found in any plants. It's very few. It's in nuts, but nuts are too energy intense to grow in space. But the most unique thing that mushrooms can provide nutritionally is vitamin D, which is the only vitamin that astronauts are currently supplemented with. So we can meet an international space station. We can meet the needs of all the vitamins and minerals except vitamin D. Because we make vitamin D in our skin when we get exposed to UV light from the sun. And mushrooms can do the same. So we don't have to turn our skin to the UV and the gamma radiation in space. So we're protecting from it. But if you expose the mushrooms to that UV light, they can produce 100% of our daily vitamin D requirements. And it only takes like three mushrooms. You know, on Earth, three mushrooms exposed to 15 minutes of sunlight will produce your daily requirements. And... Vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin that comes from animal foods. So if you're not getting it from the sun, you have to get it from animals like eggs and fatty fish. And we're not going to have animals in, in Mars because it's too energy intensive to grow. We might have insects, maybe. True. It's, you know, it's, you never know, right? That we could find a parallel universe and, you know, shoot over to Mars and that therefore we can ship the animals. <laughs> but, um, you never know the future, but that's that's the, the key. And not only that, but certain types of fungi, the lower order fungi, like mold and yeast, which you can use yeast to create food, but some types uh, block radiation. And radiation exposure is the other big you know, thing that we are not able to figure out to get to Mars. Um, the, there's evidence that it's twice as effective as water, which is really our main solution, or regolith. Regolith is kind of the, the, the sand, the fine particles on the moon. So you can create domes of habitats and cover in regolith or water, but I'm proposing that we also use fungi and cover it in fungi. So we not only will get food supply, material to create things, but also highly nutritious food. 
And last but not least is the culinary applications. So in space or in an airplane, whenever you've got the lower humidity and higher altitude, we lose all our tastes except umami. So like sweet, salty, sour, bitter umami are the fifth basic tastes that we, we can taste. And umami is actually enhanced. So I don't know if you ever had, I have a Bloody Mary up in an airplane or a wine. They're like, this wine is delicious. And when you can't come back down, you're like, oh, I like that wine. Why? Because it actually tastes different to you. Um, so mushrooms are very rich in umami. So they help enhance flavor. So it helps make food taste better. And, and it's a big deal because especially when you first get to space, you get all the fluid shift because there's no gravity. So it's basically like you have a cold. So not only can you smell, which is part of taste, but you've lost senses of sweetness and saltiness. So food doesn't taste that great and it's not that enjoyable. So with mushrooms, well, I hope that it can add that, that umami and help make things taste better. So three mushrooms. Crazy. It's so cool. It is very <laughs> cool. So three mushrooms a day keeps the doctor away is, is kind of what yes. I took out of that one. A hundred percent. Really, it's it's exciting because it's a fungi, right? It sits in its own kingdom that it has its unique profile. Mm, love it, love it, love it. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? When was the last time I did something for the first time? I feel like it happens a lot in my life. <laughs> um, I guess going to space school. That was the first. <laughs> Um, but in terms of actually trying something new, um, I started learning the piano because my daughter is learning it. So I'm having a go doing it with her. Fantastic. I love it. What is the one question that you would love to solve? None. What is the one question? that I would like to solve a problem? Just a question. Okay. I mean, really passionate one for me is like figuring, helping to figure out a food system for a space that we can apply on Earth. Go big. I'm like, hey, go big. I go on. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh, for you, what is an inspiring great leader? And who's a great example of this for you? Oh, I have the example right away, Richard Branson. Um, I absolutely admire um, how he prioritizes people in his leadership. For me personally, I think it's um, something so important because like a company is basically people. And um, if you don't prioritize your, your people and your teams, then you have nothing. So I love how he just plows through it. Like even recently, you know, um, awarding everyone on a flight, a cruise, and just the things that he does, they're, they're so out there. It reminds me of me, you know, just thinking about we can achieve anything together as a team. And I think that's how I, you know, I, I lead Food IQ Global. It's around prioritizing people and being a leader that's part of the team, you know, that inspires and that really realizes that you really have nothing unless you have the people. So for us, it's really 
people, purpose, being purpose-driven, then profit, right? The three P's that I abide by. I love it. I love it. Uh, fascinating talking to you today, Flavia. Um, how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Yeah, so they connect with me on LinkedIn um, by searching Flavia Fayetmore or you can go forward slash Dr. Flav. Also, um, I'm on socials as Dr. Flav and they can also come to the FoodIQ uh, global website and learn about more of the work that FoodIQ Global does in turning food and nutrition science into communication and education. Mm, nice. We'll put all those links in the show notes for you. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, diving into, you know, the resilience of changing countries, the the challenges that you face when you've got to learn a new language, how that may affect people's confidence in your belief. But to understand that in the world that what you set your mind to, you can achieve and that importance of manifestation. Uh, I love that you are challenging, you know, just the, that single-minded approach that we see quite often in this world when people tackle problems to think about it more holistically to go, what is the bigger picture here? What else do we need to be aware of that's coming into play? But to think even bigger and go, what's possible in space and how can we bring that back to planet Earth to make sure we're sustainable uh, in 2050 and beyond? You know, it's kind of when we think about that the population's going to expand by 25% in the next 25 years, how much faster is going to continue to grow in this world? And, and that's, you know, we need to take responsible for that as people on the planet right now. You know, we are custodians for our future generations and making sure that we can set them up for success as well. I love the way you think. It's You think differently. And I really applaud you for what, for tackling kind of some of the big problems in the world, but in a, in a really unique and curious manner. So thanks for a, an amazing conversation and look forward to continuing the conversation in the future. Same, Craig. Thank you so much for having me. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Where the ordinary don't belong.